You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Your Brain on Facts book, where you can read about female pilots whose planes were so flimsy they had to bodily hold them down during storms, as well as Moxie LaBouche voiceovers, offering 50% off to all my listeners. Email moxie at yourbrainonfacts.com. There's a drink they make in Chicago that boasts about how few people actually enjoy its bitter wormwood flavor. If bars even had a bottle of it, they probably never opened it. When the manufacturer ran a social media contest to come up with a new slogan, albeit an unofficial one, they got suggestions like, when you need to unfriend someone in person, turning taste buds into taste enemies for years, and what soap washes its mouth out with. But believe it or not, it's catching on. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Pop quiz, what is the most popular liquor in the world? While you mull that over, here's a quick primer on a small segment of the panoply that is the world of alcohol. Low alcohol beverages are made all over the globe by mixing something containing starch or simple sugars with water, adding yeast or allowing wild yeast and bacteria to invade, and leaving it to ferment wherein the yeast eat the sugar and belch out ethanol and carbon dioxide. These beers, wines, and the like can be made from any fruit, grain, and even some tree saps, like palm and birch. Anything with natural sugar will do. In colonial America, brewing with pumpkins and other winter squashes was actually fairly common. But if you take your beer or wine and distill it, meaning to boil it and collect the condensed steam, thus removing the water and making the drink stronger, now you've got something. That's where we get vodka, brandy, whiskey, and all other drinks of a spiritous nature. That's what we're talking about today, the weirdest and most wonderful hooch humanity has come up with. On the whole, I am ruling out craft beers because, well, you know how craft beers are. Even trying to restrict my search to hard liquor, the Google machine kept popping up craft beer after craft beer. Beer made with pizza, or chilies, or fermented shark fin, or bull testicles, or goat brain, or stag semen. Not a word of a lie didn't make any of those up. But back to the question of the most favored firewater. There is a lot of whiskey in the world, for sure, what with all of its subcategories consumed across the U.S. and Canada, and of course, Ireland. They're credited with inventing it, after all, though they called it Ishkabaha, the water of life. No, it's not whiskey. You might be thinking, they drink a lot of vodka in Russia. That is true, but it's not vodka. You know where else they have a lot of people? China. 
1.4 billion to be specific. And it's the Chinese spirit baiju that is drunk more than any other. And I'm guaranteed to be mispronouncing that because I have not been trained in any inflected languages. Sorry. It's the world's most popular liquor by volume, selling more than 10 billion with a B liters every year. More than all the vodka and whiskey in the world combined. Baiju is a vast category of clear yet complex spirits that have played a prominent role in China's drinking culture since the Ming Dynasty. It's been called Laiju, harsh alcohol, or Shouju, burnt wine. Today it is called Baiju, which translates to white spirits. In contrast to Chinese fermented grain alcohols, known as Huangju, or yellow wine, it's usually distilled from fermented sorghum, although other grains can be used. It is also strong, like really strong, running between 80 to 120 proof or between 40 and 60% alcohol. Brand names aren't as big a force in Baiju as they would be in the West, where you might swear by Jack Daniels and never touch Jim Beam, or you only drink Hennessy when you're out. Restaurants and families all do their own styles, and it changes a lot regionally. Brand names are barely a factor, but I do want to mention one, Shui Jingfang. The brand's only been around since 2000, but it's declared itself the oldest distillery in China because its parent company stumbled upon the ruins of a 600-year-old facility when they were undergoing renovations in the 90s. They are technically correct, the best kind of correct. Baiju can be divided into six subcategories, divided by their fragrances. Honey, layered, light, rice, sauce, and thick. None of which would help me make a decision if I was buying it in the shops. It's said that Western palates tend to favor the lighter and sweeter fragrances, and it's not very surprising. Baiju is rare in the U.S., though you can find it in certain thoroughly stocked bars. And it might be a while before it catches on. People who have tried it often describe it as tasting like sweaty socks or rotten fruit and other things that don't make me want to reach for one. In other words, to the uninitiated, it tastes weird at best. If we're going to talk about spirits in Asia, we should probably address the elephant in the room. Or rather, the snake, lizard, or baby mouse. You may not find them at the convenience store, but wines and spirits with a dead animal plonked inside are not uncommon. The impetus for this is usually medicinal, either to treat a particular condition or for overall health and, of course, virility. Like Chinese hijaiju, in which a whole gecko-type lizard is fermented in a bottle of whiskey or rice wine for anywhere from between two weeks to one year. And it's said that it can cure everything from ulcers to cancer, though I personally feel an ulcer coming on just thinking about that. But I think I like it better, or at least dislike it less, than baby mice wine. They take a jar of rice wine, put a handful of day-old baby mice in it, let it ferment for a year, and Bob's your uncle, you've got a super alcoholic, thoroughly shocking beverage, believed by many to be a health tonic, and believed to be six shades of nasty by me. 
If you're ever in Vietnam, head to a suburb of Hanoi known as Snake Village, where they make the freshest snake wine that money can buy. And it's just like it sounds, wine with a snake in it. The price varies on a sliding scale according to the relative rarity of the snake species or the difficulty in procuring it. For the full experience, you can even kill the snake yourself, a much more metal version of choosing a live lobster, and do a shot with some of the snake's organs in it. The crown jewel there is, of course, the heart. You may have seen Anthony Bourdain knock back the still-beating heart of, I want to say, a cobra on an episode of No Reservations. You don't always need the whole animal, though. Next time you're in a Chinese market, look for Teji Sanbianju, which translates to Three Penis Wine. That's not a wacky babblefish mistranslation or a cross-cultural misunderstanding of an idiom. This wine contains the penises, penai, pine, of a seal, a deer, and a dog. You'll want to look in the health and beauty department rather than the beer cooler because three penis wine is a traditional natural remedy for, of course, impotence. Talk about like cures like. The bottle may even have a warning label on it that young boys shouldn't drink it because they're not ready and adult men should consume it in careful moderation. What does three-penis wine taste like? According to one source, like gone-off port with a pungent vinegar taste and a hint of prune juice. And on the whole, the flavor profile is definitely penis-forward. Maybe a fin would be more your speed. The fin of a pufferfish. As if playing Russian roulette with your plate of sashimi weren't enough, you can order yourself a hirazaki. Pufferfish or fugu contain paralyzing tetrodotoxins, and even a small portion of the wrong part of the fish can kill you. Who else learned that from The Simpsons? Show of hands? Fugu is carefully controlled in Japan, where chefs have to attain a license to clean the fish before serving it. In the US, any fugu that's imported has already had all the toxic parts removed. The fins are dehydrated until bone dry, then carefully grilled, placed in a cup, and topped with hot sake, left to steep for a few minutes before consuming. Optionally, you can also light the vapors. Hirazaki is popular in Japan during the cooler times of year, and a small collection of American restaurants are now serving it. We've checked off mammals, reptiles, and fish. How about a bird in your booze? or rather, booze made from a bird. In the cold expanses of the Arctic, food sources can be scarce, but the human animal does enjoy getting their drink on, thus the creation of seagull wine. Now, internet sources on this are a bit thin, but it seems to be made by putting a dead seagull, whole or in parts, into a bottle of water, or filling it with water like a wineskin, and leaving it in the sun for a few days. One person who claims to have sampled seagull wine reported, it goes down hard and settles down worse. But we are reliably informed that it will get you drunk, which at that point would be helpful. Maybe a smaller animal wouldn't be quite so hard to swallow. 
How about a little insect gastronomy, courtesy of the Nordic Food Lab, a nonprofit that brings food and science together? The quote, edible potential of the Nordic region inspired them to make a gin that Thomas Shelby wouldn't touch. Anti-gin. Gin made from ants. Ants communicate with one another using a complex array of pheromones and formic acid. And it's this formic acid which reacts with the ethanol to produce aromatic esters, or scent compounds, that help inform our sense of taste. According to their partner in the effort, Cambridge Distillery, they're trying to open people's eyes to the viability and even enjoyability of insects as a food. A team of scientists foraged the forests of the UK for redwood ants, gathered up about 6,000 of them or so, and distilled them. Like you do. It's not pure ants, though. There is also wheat, herbs, and Bulgarian juniper. Each bottle, they estimate, contains the essence of about 62 wood ants, give or take. But how does it taste? According to one gin enthusiast, it smells powdery, slightly vinegary. There's an acrid, organic character to it, reminiscent of that kind of unusual, indolent note in jasmine flowers. But he found the taste to be almost entirely underwhelming. I nearly did a whole episode on ants for this week. It's one of those topics that sounds like it would be simple and boring, like when I did an episode on mud or salt. But there are ants who live to be doors, ants who explode, ants who taste like lemon, ants that infest the homes of other ants. If that's something you think you'd like to hear about, shout out on the social media. I'm on Facebook and Instagram as Your Brain on Facts and Twitter at Brain on Facts Pod. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history. If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir de zen, my friends. Bye-bye.
I'll be seeing you. Speaking of shouting out, I absolutely want to shout out some of our recent reviewers, both of the podcast and of the book. Rachel is Awesome gave us five stars and said, I feel so lucky to have stumbled upon this fantastic Fun Facts podcast recently. Moxie does a brilliant job at flowing unique, lesser-known facts and history together for every topic with the perfect amount of tasteful humor. Side note, she did say Popeye's chicken sandwich isn't that good, which I do not personally understand, although she makes up for it by loving the movie Clue. Listening to her makes me think if I knew her in person, she would be a great friend with thoughtful conversations. You've got a lifelong listener, Moxie. Thanks for everything you do. And thank you, Rachel is Awesome, who is in fact awesome. And I am definitely good to be friends with, provided you can handle, like, a 150-pound yip dog. Because that's basically me. But I cook, so I feel like it balances out. Over on the book reviews, I was reading them in uh, the order in which they came in. But I got one this past week, and I am hoping to get one a week, that I have to share with you right now. Voltar gave us five stars and said, Buy this book. You'll be the envy of all your quirky friends. Vulture poop has antiseptic properties, so when they stand in a rotting carcass, they sanitize their legs. Is that not how you start random conversations at a party? Then you should move on. But if you're someone that loves a new weird fact and can't help but aggressively share, then this is the book for you. You know, a book. It's like a podcast that you read. And at the bottom, they add uh, an asterisk. You should also check out Moxie's podcast of the same name. It's like if reading hour at the library was hosted by a dulcet, disembodied voice delivering facts into your ear holes you're not sure how you lived without. Thank you, Voltar, for that. That was amazing. And if you want to hear your opinions read on the show, leave it a review on your podcast listening app of choice. If yours doesn't seem to do reviews, you can also use the website podchaser.com, which is essentially the IMDb of podcasts. Thank you, everyone who is leaving reviews on Amazon. Uh, Please do continue to do that if you haven't already. And if you have come to the podcast from the book, you didn't know the podcast beforehand, I would love to hear from you. You can email moxie at yourbrainonfacts.com or hit the social medias. Were those last drinks too visceral for you? How about a nice cold glass of milk? Based vodka. Vodka, by definition, is a clear distilled liquor without definite aroma or taste, ranging in alcoholic content from 40 to 55 percent, give or take. You may reflexively think of vodka as Russian and made from that humble rock star the potato, but researchers aren't so sure. It's hard to trace vodka's exact origin, assuming it started in only one place and spread outward from there, rather than being the product of simultaneous invention. In this case, different people, unknown to one another, discovering that if you take the weak spirit used in medicinals and distill it again and maybe a third time, you get something both palatable and knock you on your buttable. We do know that the first written reference to vodka comes from Poland in 1405, with a reference in Russia ten years later. The potatoes were also pretty late to the party. They didn't show up in Russia till the middle of the 19th century. Because vodka's distillation process removes flavor compounds, 
you can get away with using the cheapest, most readily available source of sugars. Sugars like lactose. Black cow pure milk vodka sprung from the mind of a sixth-generation cheesemaker from Devon in the UK and a friend of his. Regular vodka starts with a mash, or grain cooked or soaked in water. Now what would a cheesemaker have lots of that is a liquid with natural sugars in it? Whey. The watery waste product once the proteins and fats of milk have joined together into curds. A special yeast is needed to ferment the whey, which is much more acidic than a normal mash. The resulting beer is then distilled and triple filtered. Because milk vodka requires less water for its distillation process, it has a lower mineral content than grain or potato vodkas, which are often made with mineral-heavy hard water. This means it has an almost creamy feeling on the tongue, because what the world needs right now is vodka that's easier to drink straight. Black Cow has been available in its native England since 2012, but there are a few distributors in the U.S. carrying it. Hey, Richard, you're in England. Can you get some of that and taste test it for me? Muchas gracias. Probably the best thing about Black Cow is that it helps to use up a waste product that otherwise goes down the drain, hog feeding and bodybuilding shakes notwithstanding. Because as I mentioned, vodka can be made cheaply with whatever you had enough of that season. By the 8th century, peasant farmers were making it for themselves all across Russia and its neighboring Slavic states. When Ivan the Terrible united the various smaller principalities and kingdoms into one country, with himself as the first Tsar, he noticed the popularity of a certain readily available intoxicant among his people. Ivan declared the production and sale of alcohol was a royal privilege, and therefore all alcohol was now the property of the crown. Only the crown could make and sell vodka. This guaranteed a revenue stream for the royal family by giving them a monopoly on a cheap product that everyone wanted. Throughout the centuries, the czars have opened plant after plant, pumping out vodka almost everyone could easily afford. It was such a good system, for the royals at least, that when Catherine the Great came to power in the 18th century, she rewarded lesser nobles with vodka production and selling rights rather than grants of land. 140 years later, as his ancestral grip on the world's largest country began to slip away, Tsar Nicholas II had to relinquish power to an elected body. And in 1905, one of the first things they did was to combat the massive alcoholism that had become emblematic of Russian life. Surely that was an unforeseen consequence. Surely the Tsar wouldn't want people face down in various gutters all day. A peasant who wastes his money on vodka is too drunk to think of his situation and how he might get out of it. He's too drunk to organize or even join a protest. He might beat his wife, and she drinks. He might beat his kids, and soon they start drinking. It's like an especially depressing type of pyramid scheme. He's miserable, so he drinks. The drink keeps him miserable, so he wants more drink. Drink comes from the czar, so it follows that he will be a czarist. The increased blood pressure, inflamed blood vessels, kidney, pancreatic, and liver failure 
were just the price he paid for his role in the system. That system came to an end with the rise of communism, as the Russian Communist Party pushed for prohibition, making stirring films featuring revolutionaries smashing liquor bottles. Leninism was strictly prohibitionist, and declared alcohol to be a vice by which the bourgeoisie subjugated and controlled the proletariat. He may have a case there. After the Bolsheviks took over, the Tsar's vodka plants were all shut down. That lasted until Stalin seized power. He cranked the vodka factories back up like the opening of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Stalin pretty much rebuilt the old Tsarist system of subsidized alcoholism. He called it the People's Vodka. The people didn't need that much encouragement. Soviet alcoholism grew worse, arguably peaking through the 70s and 80s, as the economy collapsed and they were stuck fighting a war they'd already lost in Afghanistan. To give you a sense of how accepted heavy vodka drinking was at the time, Stolishnaya vodka bottles had a cap that, once removed, could not go back on the bottle. It was just assumed the entire bottle would be drunk in one sitting. Why would you ever want to close a bottle of vodka? You can see these bottles in the HBO Chernobyl series. Bonus fact, Chernobyl means wormwood, so named for all of the wormwood in the area. These days, the vodka plants have been privatized, but the Russian government hasn't taken any real steps to address the fact that about one in six of their citizens suffer from alcoholism. This is where I'll put a mood-lifting segue to our Patreon just as soon as I can think of one. Over on patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, the current bonus episode about to post is about drinks native to Australia. No, I don't mean fosters. What sorts of things did the original Australians drink? We may have to cast a pretty wide net, though. The tribes of Australia were at least as numerous and diverse as those of pre-Columbian North America. In fact, before Europeans arrived in Oz, there were over 250 languages spoken on the continent. I'm sure a few other queer quaffs will make it in there as well. Back to Black Cow Vodka. It isn't Milk's first foray into transmogrifying into alcohol. Neither is this a recent invention. In what is now Kazakhstan, the Batai people tamed wild horses over 5,000 years ago. The horses were key to their lives, not just for transport and hunting, but for milk. And from that milk, they made kumis a fermented beverage described as tasting like, quote, champagne mixed with sour cream. Okay, that does sound kind of terrible, but it also kind of sounds like it could go with caviar and toast points, not that in my life I will ever get to partake of caviar and toast points. 13th century missionary William of Robrook raved that kumis makes the inner man most joyful. The milk's naturally high sugar content makes it good for fermentation. The nomads churn it, almost like making butter, until the milk acidifies and the yeasts produce the alcohol and the fizzy bubbles. Fizzy milk. The fermentation wasn't just for shiggles. It was necessary to be able to drink it at all. 
Unlike the milk of cows, goats, yaks, etc., mare's milk contains so much lactose that even for those who have mankind's most recent evolutionary step, the ability to digest milk after infancy, mare's milk has a severe laxative effect. Now, a food source doesn't do you very much good if the nourishment comes out of you faster than it went in. Kumis is good for the whole family. Mothers fed babies a less fermented version with a low, but not non-existent amount of alcohol. You can buy kumis in stores there, but it's only fermented to about 2% alcohol, and it's made with cow's milk, so what's the point even? Wait a minute, you say. That's not a distilled spirit. You let another low ABV bevy slip in. Well, I wasn't finished, was I? Kumis can be made into araga. It's made in a homemade still called the shururun, which is crafted from a hollowed-out trunk of a poplar tree. And this results in a clear, sour liquor of between 5 and 20% alcohol that supposedly tastes more mild if warmed. Additional distillation can produce a stronger product called danzaria. Speaking of things getting stronger, the Brainiac community is getting stronger. We have the Brainiac Breakroom group over on Facebook, but thanks to listener Zach, we now have a subreddit, r slash yourbrainonfacts, where you can share all of the bizarre and interesting stuff that you find. And of course, you know, actually talk to the like-minded people who are also listening to the show, which is far and away the best part. Now they say a good chef always puts something of themselves into their cooking and brewing and distilling is no different. We head south now to Peru, great lovers of two of my favorite New World foods, corn and potatoes. There, potatoes come in wondrous varieties of size and color, and the corn, or choclo, has kernels many times the size of the niblets you're used to. Choclo is the basis for many products, not the least of which is a beer called chicha, Chicha isn't very strong, but people do tend to drink a lot of it, especially during social occasions and holidays. The people of the Andes weren't the only ones to figure out the special trick they used to jumpstart the fermentation process. And like many civilizations through the world and through time, they placed a special significance on brewing. It became a ritual carried out by a small group of women known as Virgins of the Sun. The word chicha isn't the indigenous word for it, rather the name the Spanish invaders decided to give it. Some say the word is derived from the indigenous languages used in Panama and Colombia. Others say it comes from the word chichal, to spit. This is fitting, not because you spit it out, but because you spit into it. Step one, partially chew the corn kernels and spit them into the pot. Because the starch in corn can't immediately be fermented by yeast, enzymes in saliva break the starch down into sugars, which the yeast can take and convert to alcohol. Throughout the area known as the Sacred Valley, you can spot many chicherias around, clearly marked with a red flag or red bag hanging on a pole outside. Modern mass-produced chicha uses malted barley instead of spit, but it is still only recommended to those with, to quote Queen Elizabeth I from Blackadder, 
the heart and stomach of a concrete elephant. The cloudy liquid has an earthy taste that isn't naturally palatable for those who don't grow up with it, and it's known to cause digestive discomfort for a day or two. Chicha's masticated maze may not have surprised you if you remember the movie Medicine Man with the late Sean Connery, but what if I told you you can make whiskey from pee? Whiz-key, if you will. I say you can make whiskey from pee, not that anyone should, but one man named James Gilpin did. Gilpin, a type 1 diabetic, heard a story, which is thus far thankfully unprovable, about pharmaceutical workers who set up a lab next to a retirement home in order to extract unprocessed drugs from elderly patients' urine to put them into new products. In people with diabetes, the body can't produce enough insulin to break down the sugars in food, so unprocessed glucose is removed from the body via the urine. A light bulb went off in Gilpin's head as he thought of his grandmother, also a diabetic, and just how much sugar must be going down the drain every day. He thought, why not use the same process as whiskey distillation to put that sugar to good use? His grandmother supplied him with the raw materials, as it were, and Gilpin was in the whiskey business. Thankfully, Gilpin Family Whiskey is more performance art than it is product line. The whiskies were on exhibit at a London design event, each labeled with the name and hometown of the patient who provided the sugars. Tastings were offered, but I chose to stop my research before finding any description of the flavor or smell. While we're giving James Gilpin side-eye, we might want to save some for a few brewers of a traditional Korean health tonic, Tongsul. There's not a lot of information to be found on it, but what seems consistent across the sources is that it has about 9% alcohol, can treat everything from bruises to epilepsy, and it's made with rice wine fermented with the poo of a child, preferably around six years old. Tongsu is by no means a common drink in Korea. It's not even widely known. Vice.com managed to find a traditional Korean medicine doctor who claims to be one of the last people who knows how to make this, in his words, feces wine. According to their reporter, Dr. Lee Chang-su seemed genuinely sad that feces is no longer widely used in Eastern medicine, despite its centuries of tradition from bat droppings to treat alcoholism, to chicken feces to treat stomach problems. As a possible saving grace that at least two sources I saw said it's meant to be used topically, not ingested, which is, I guess, a little better. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. So what is this beverage from the city of the big shoulders with fan slogans of Tonight's the night you fight your dad, and these pants aren't going to sh** themselves. It's called Malort, a type of Swedish liquor called a Beskbranven. And there's only one company that makes it, Jepsons. Despite not paying for marketing in the last... ever, apparently, hipsters who love the obscurity of it, thrill-seekers who love the challenge of it, and of course, Chicago's substantial Swedish and Polish communities are rediscovering it but it's been around since 1880, so don't call it a comeback. 
Remember, you can find the script for this week's show and all of the source links at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And stay safe. Oh, and about this week's Mystery Monday, it was not meant to be easy. That's one of the reasons I offered a book instead of stickers. But it all came from me talking too fast and my husband mishearing me when I declared that I wanted to do an episode about weird alcohol. His brain didn't take in the words weird and alcohol. It took in Weird Al and something he couldn't quite make out, which almost sounded like Quahog, which is another name for a type of clam. So that is why I put a picture up of Weird Al with a clam instead of a head. Don't question my creative process. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.